right. Well, thank you, um, Betsy, for that. And um, hello to all of you. Um, if you don't know who I am, my name is Jordan, and I'm one of the folks on the preaching team here at Missio Day Church. And it's good to be together on Zoom, even with all the craziness last night with the storm. Uh, this is my first time uh, doing a sermon on Zoom. And so uh, Joel had a great encouragement. He said, hey, man, don't suck. So thank you for that, Pastor Joel. Um, if you're anything like me, and uh, I know that I am, uh, you love roller coasters. I am a big fan of roller coasters. I uh, love amusement parks. And um, growing up, we went to uh, an amusement park in Ohio called Cedar Point. Cedar Point is home to the tallest roller coaster in the country. And I rode the tallest roller coaster in the country, and I survived. It's a uh, small, very important um, club that I'm in, but I just want you to know I'm a normal guy, just like you, okay? I put my yoga pants on one leg at a time, just like you. Um, but uh, what's so fascinating to me about amusement parks is that people will wait for hours for something that will last like maybe two minutes, even less than two minutes. In fact, um, but what makes this waiting a little bit easier and more bearable is that you can see firsthand what you're waiting for, right? You're standing in line. You see the roller coasters zoom by. There's people screaming. Their hands are in the air, right? And now they even have this deal where if you go to an amusement park and before you go into the ride, there's a clock outside that ride that says the wait time for this ride is one hour and 15 minutes. So you know exactly how long you're going to be waiting before you um, are going to get on the ride. But what about waiting when you don't really know exactly what you're waiting for or what exactly it will look like? And you also have no idea how long you're going to be waiting. So we are in the second week of Advent, which is the season of watching and waiting. Um, Advent marks the beginning of the church calendar. And for centuries, the church would participate in, in, in this um, season as a remembrance of the time when Israel waited for the Messiah to come for 400 years. Uh, and last week, the Reverend Dr. Kenneth Jones uh, spoke about this theme of waiting. And we're going to continue to look at Stephen's speech uh, and use it as, a, as another lens to kind of see um, this season of Advent and hopefully capture another angle on it. So if you have a Bible near you, um, turn to Acts chapter 7. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 7, uh, 30 through 50, but I'm going to read uh, 30 through 40 and then 47 through 50. So Acts chapter 7, verse uh, starting in verse 30. It says, after another 40 years, an angel appeared to him, in the desert at Mount Sinai, in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the vision. But as he came closer to see, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses was very frightened and didn't care to look. But the Lord said to him, take your sandals off, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have looked long and hard and seen the trouble that my people are having in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to rescue them. So come on now, I'm going to send you to Egypt. So Stephen continued, this same Moses, the one they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler or judge? This is the man God sent as a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who has appeared to him in the bush. He did signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and led them out through the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who said to the children of Israel, God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. And this is the one who was in the assembly in the desert 
with the angel who had spoken to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to give to us. This is the one whom our ancestors had not wanted to obey, but instead rejected and rejected him and turned back in their hearts to Egypt by saying to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Stephen goes on to recount how the Israelites um, go on to build a, a, an, an idol, a calf, and they make sacrifices to this idol and uh, they start to celebrate. Uh, what they had made with their own hands. And he talks uh, of their ancestors building the tent of meeting in the desert uh, as God had instructed Moses to do uh, and how David found favor with God and built the tabernacle for the house of Jacob. And then, and then he says this, we're going to pick it up in verse um, 47. It says, but it was Solomon who built him a house. The most high, however, does not live in shrines made by human hands. The prophet put it like this, heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build me, says the Lord? Or what will you give me to rest in? My own, my own hand made all these, did it not? So if you remember kind of the, um, the situation here, so Stephen was originally kind of charged with sort of going soft on Moses and the law. So he recounts in his speech the story of Moses. But he doesn't do this to discredit Moses, but rather to try and draw the link between what God had done in and through Moses to what God had done and continues to do in and through Jesus. He sees Moses as kind of a rejected rescuer, someone who was rejected by the very people that had sent him to rest, that God had sent him to rescue. And he wants the council to see that the Messiah Jesus is another rejected rescuer. But the difference is that this, this is the rescuer, which is why he closes his speech in verse 52 with saying, which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? And you killed those who announced in advance that, that coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed him and murdered him. Part of the point that Stephen is trying to drive home, and much of the early church Jesus followers tried to drive home, is that the God that he and the early church had come to know in Jesus is not different from the God that this ruling court and their ancestors had known. In fact, it was the same God. And this sort of subtle point that Stephen tries to get across in his speech begs a question that I want us to consider. Advent is a season of waiting in anticipation. But do we know the character of the one for whom we wait? What kind of God exactly are we waiting for? What is this God like that we wait on? There's a clue embedded in this text that I think can provide clarity in responding to the question of what is this God like that we watch and wait for? Verse, 30, verse 34 gives us a window into the nature of the God that the Israelites were waiting on. And it's in verse, uh, so, so check out verse 34. I'm going to read it right now. I have looked long and hard at the trouble my people are having in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and I have come down to rescue them. So in this verse, we see that this is a God who sees. This is a God who hears. This is a God who pursues. And this is a God who rescues. This is the God that we wait for. And I'm, I'm going to look at all four of those characteristics. This is a God 
who sees. Um, when I uh, did Young Life out in California, Emily and I were um, leading up this particular high school. And one of these days, we, um, when we were on the campus walking around looking really awkward, as Young Life leaders do, um, we met this kid named Jose. And Jose happened to have uh, Down syndrome. And we would hang out once a week or a couple times a week with Jose and get to know him and just have lunch with him. And um, one day we asked the teachers if it would be okay if me and Emily and some of the other leaders might come to the special ed classroom and, and just hang out with them. And the look on her face, she was just beaming with joy, almost in tears saying, no one ever wants to come into this classroom. Yes, we would love to have that help. And I remember one day leaving a time of hanging out with Jose, we ran into another one of our kids that we, uh, that we known, and he asked what, what we were doing in that classroom. And I said, oh, we're hanging out with our, our, our friend Jose that we just met. And his response was really telling. He says, I don't even know who that kid is. I've never seen him before. This was this group of kids at this high school who were absolutely invisible, not seen by anyone else. And Maybe there's some of us on this call this morning that can resonate with the feeling of being invisible and not being seen, uh, being overlooked. And if you don't hear anything, I, I feel like this is a word from the Lord to you that the Father sees you even now and his heart is full of compassion for his daughter, for his son. This is a God who sees. Remember Jesus, Jesus, who uh, he said to Philip in the beginning of the gospel of John, he says, before you came to me, I saw you under the fig tree. Remember Zacchaeus? Jesus sees him up in the tree. He calls him by name Zacchaeus. Hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. And Jesus didn't, didn't just see things, but he, see, he, he saw things as they were meant to be seen. He didn't just see people. He saw people as they were meant to be seen. Remember uh, Zacchaeus was called by everyone else a real sinner. But Jesus says he is a son. He said that he too is a son of Abraham. Remember in Mark 2, the paralyzed man? Everyone called him the paralyzed man. And because he had a, he had a physical disability, the thought of the day was that he was outside of God's love. And yet Jesus calls him son. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And even to the end, when Jesus is on the cross, to the very end of his life, he's looking at a group of people who are mocking him. And he sees them and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. This is a God who sees. What a profound picture, a beautiful picture of forgiveness and grace and love. That even in the midst of taking on sin and death and the worst of the human experience, looking at a group of people who are rejecting that and saying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. This is a God who sees. But this is also a, a God who hears. The, the God that we wait on is a God who hears. One of the greatest feelings is when you are with someone in conversation and you truly feel heard. You're with this sense that there's nothing else in the world that's more important to this person than having a conversation with you. And it's in time of chaos and fear or uncertainty or pain when we long to be heard the most, right? If you think of when the, in the midst of the storm, the disciples say, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? Or the person that cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus hears their cry. 
How about the bleeding woman in Mark 5? Jesus stops and listens to her whole story, her whole story, which is probably a long one with a lot of twists and turns and forgotten hopes and all of that. And remember the context. In in that passage, they're on their way to Jairus' house, one of the most important people in the community. And Jesus stops the whole parade of people to listen to this woman's whole story. Why? Because he is the incarnation of the God who hears. This is a God who hears. This is also a God who pursues. In almost 20 years of working with middle school and high school kids, um, uh, predominantly kids who are outside the church who don't have any faith background, uh, the one consistent thread over all types of kids from all different um, communities, different ethnicities, races, backgrounds, families, all that sort of stuff, there's one consistent thread. And that's what their picture of God is like. And it's one of a God who is distant, far off, disconnected, and a God who would want nothing to do with them. And that if he did want something to do with them, in their minds, that would be a really bad thing. But sadly, I think this picture is alive and well within the church today. This distant God who's far off, disconnected, and some have even said has separated himself from us, that God is over there and we are over here and never the twain shall meet. And yet Paul reminds us that this is a God who pursues because he says nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because this is a God who pursues. Remember what Jesus said, I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming for you. Or the prodigal son who, while his, while the father sees him, while he was still a long ways off, the father doesn't wait for him to get home. He runs to him. He pursues him because of the overwhelming passion in his heart for his son who has come home. He runs to him because this is a God who pursues. Listen to this quote from Carlo Coretto from his book, The God Who Comes. God presents himself to us little by little. The whole story of salvation is the story of God who comes. It is always he who comes, even if he has not yet come in his fullness. But there is indeed one unique moment in his coming. The others were only preparations and announcements. The hour of his coming is the incarnation. The incarnation brings the world his presence. It is a presence so complete that it overshadows every presence before it. God is made human in Christ. God makes himself present to us with such a special presence, such an obvious presence as to overthrow all the complicated calculations made about him in the past. The invisible, intangible God has made himself visible intangible in Christ. If Jesus is truly God, everything is clear. If I cannot believe this, everything darkens again. This is a God who pursues. And this is a God who pursues us because he wants to rescue us, because he is a God who rescues for many years, I've coached uh, high school basketball, and uh, when I was uh, a young life leader out in California, I coached at Pioneer Valley High School, 
and uh, you've probably heard of it, seen on ESPN. Uh, but I was uh, one of the assistant JV basketball coaches. And uh, it was through coaching basketball that I met a kid named Jacob. Jacob loved basketball. I mean, he loved everything about it. The only problem is that Jacob wasn't so great at basketball. That was kind of the disconnect there. Um, we typically keep 12 players on the team. Jacob barely made the team, okay? Um, but I got to know Jacob a little bit because I would uh, give him ride home from practice and games and things like that because, you see, his parents weren't around. They didn't come to practices or games. So Jacob was not seen. Jacob was not heard, and Jacob was not pursued. Uh, so I got to know Jacob a little bit um, uh, from those times together in the car, just giving him a ride home. But fast forward to the last game of the season, and the coach decided to put Jacob in the starting lineup. And so Jacob, uh, Jacob starts the game, and uh, second or third play down on offense, Jacob gets the ball in the corner and shoots a three, and the whole coaching staff is like going, oh, no, please, God, no, right? So he takes a, a shot in the corner three, boom, money, okay? Now, money is an inside basketball term. That means he made the shot, okay? So um, he comes down, he makes a shot, boom, money. And he's like dancing like, yeah, let's go. And I'm like, okay, get back on D, get back on D. So he gets back. Next time, down, Jacob gets the ball on the corner three, boom, money, okay? Next time down, Jacob gets the ball in the corner, boom, money. Next time down, in the corner, boom, money. He makes six three-pointers in a row. I haven't made six three-pointers in a row in my dreams, okay? And this is unbelievable. And um, at the end of the season, I convinced Jacob to come with me to uh, Woodleaf, which was a young life camp up in Northern California. And so Jacob came and had the best week of his life. And um, getting to know Jacob a little bit more and hearing more about his story, um, I learned that Jacob was sexually abused by a pastor. And his picture of God was all tied up in that experience as of course it would be. And um, I'll never forget after hearing the good news of the cross, Jacob and I went for a walk and uh, we walked all the way down to the, the, the deck of the dining hall at Woodleaf and he sat there and he shared about how he would fill his life with drugs and alcohol and relationships with girls to fill the void and numb the pain from that experience in his life. And he said, Jordan, I feel so worthless and I feel so weak. And in the moment when the Holy Spirit spoke through me, and it wasn't Jordan Droge, I said, Jacob, you are worth more than you know, and I've never seen you stronger. And that night, Jacob came home to be with the Father. And the next morning, we woke up and went to Young Life Club in the morning, and Jacob got to hear the good news of the resurrection. And then we went back to our cabin for cabin time, where kind of we all sit on the same level in a circle and kind of throw a football around that kick, kick, kick around some questions and the football gets to Jacob. And this is all that Jacob says. He says, you know, this morning I woke up, I put my feet on the ground and for the first time in my life, I feel free. Jacob had just been awakened to the reality that in and through the person of Jesus, he had been rescued. And for the first time, Jacob was seen, and Jacob was heard, and Jacob was pursued, and Jacob had realized that he had been rescued, and it changed everything. So yes, the God that we wait on is one who sees 
hears, pursues, and rescues. But this God is so gracious and so loving that he doesn't stop there. This good news is for all creation, not just for a select few. The rescue project must move forward, and we get to be in on it. Because the, this God is also a God who sends. Look at the end of verse 34 of Acts chapter 7. The Lord said to Moses, come on now, I am going to send you to Egypt. So, friends, we are a seen people. We are a heard people. We are a pursued people. We are a rescued people. But we are also a sent people. God's rescue project is a beautiful, unfolding drama. But there are no spectators in the story. We are all in on it. Everyone is a participant, each with his or her own role to play and job to do. So my question is, where, where is your Egypt? Or who might your Egypt be? This God that we wait on is a God who sends. So where might God be sending you? Because our community is filled with many Jacobs who would long to say, for the first time in my life, I feel free. So many have yet to experience the good news that in Jesus, there is a creator God who sees them, hears them, pursues them, rescues them, and that yes, they too can get in on this rescue project because they will also be sent out by a God who sends. The last couple of times that I've spoken, um, I've given kind of a a weekly prayer uh, as an encouragement for us to say. And I have one for this week, and it's a little bit of a longer one. Um, And so hopefully it'll pop up here on the screen. Um, But here is the prayer that I would love for us to pray this week. Lord, awaken every part of who I am to the beautiful reality that I am seen, I am heard, I am pursued, and I am rescued. It is you, Jesus, and you alone who has made this so. Send me now to the places and to the people who have yet to experience this glorious good news. So I would encourage encourage us to pray that prayer this week. And uh, I'm going to see if maybe uh, we can get that on the realm as well, um, since it's a longer prayer. But I would really encourage you to be um, praying that prayer this week and just see what the Lord would do. But friends, you are seen and you are heard. You are pursued and you have been rescued by And this is the God that we watch and wait for. So take hope because we are not a forgotten people. For every valley shall be lifted up, and every hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And all people, all people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let me pray. Father, I pray 
out of the abundance of your grace and your love for all of creation, that this day we would experience the fact that we are seen and heard and pursued and rescued and that you have sent us to places to be bearers of that good news to everyone that we know. Because this good news is for all people. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And the way that you have spoken is through the person of your son, Jesus, who we wait in anticipation for, who we prepare our hearts for. I am so grateful that we are not a forgotten people. And I pray that we would live and move and have our being in this reality. So that we might fully experience the goodness of who you are, but also so that we might be bearers of that goodness to those who are desperately long to say, for the first time in my life, I feel free. Bless us as we go from this place in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.